The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Parsing the Practicalities of Pathologic Response Assessment After Neoadjuvant Immunotherapy to Facilitate Progress in Early-Stage Cancers. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash HCZ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. My great pleasure to have you all here and to open this symposium entitled Passing the Practicalities of Pathologic Response Assessment after Neoadjuvant Immunotherapy to Facilitate Progress in Early Stage Cancer. It's my great pleasure to be here with you. My name is Solange Peters. I'm leading the medical oncology uh, in Lausanne, in a small country, Switzerland. But I will be with my colleagues today, and we will share this work to try to cover this important topic with uh, Dr. Mark Awad from the Low Cancer Center for Thoracic Oncology, uh, working at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, and Jonathan Spicer from McGill University in Montreal General Hospital in Quebec, Canada. All the three of us will try to uh, help you understanding our questions, our interrogations, and our knowledge at the time being about neoadjuvant treatments across diseases, but with an accent, I must say, on specifically non-small cell lung cancer. So today we have uh, this aim of uh, uh, trying to recognize the gaps and opportunities for improvement of cancer care, trying to understand how resectable cancer uh, include operational challenges and multimodality uh, treatments uh, that have to be addressed in clinical trials, however, are quite slow because overall survival remains the gold standard outcome measures for phase three trials and requires uh, a protracted trial length in resectable cancers, making all the pace of what we do quite slow. And we'd like today to understand how we can expedite research and achieve progress. In innovation will be needed by putting potentially changing the endpoints by, for example, using PFS, but more importantly, potentially imagining that pathologic response might be a way to make the results and the practice changing faster for the best of our patients. We will highlight in this program today some fundamental, fundamental foundational concept of perioperative immunotherapy. We will discuss the evolution of perioperative immunotherapy trials, as well as the question of surrogate endpoints. And last but not least, we will focus on what we have, the data of the three important clinical trials which today have been presenting, looking specifically at non-small cell lung cancer. And of course, at the end, the most important, your questions. So I will start immediately with the foundational concept of perioperative immunotherapy in resectable solid tumors. So let's move immediately to this uh, rationale for immunotherapy. So first of all, we have been describing very early already in the course of the development of immunotherapy for solid tumors, the existence of immune checkpoints. These uh, accelerators or breaks that exist in front of the immune system are affecting the immune system and making the immune response possible or impossible in front of a cancer which is growing. And of course, you probably have seen all these names coming in publication, as well as in phase one clinical trials for many of them. But we have to admit today, with the practice having to meet today, probably two or three of them, the uh, inhibiting uh, checkpoints, which are CTLA-4, PD-1, 
PDL1, LAC3 with uh, uh, respective inhibitors. Of course, uh, I don't want to go into details, but I'm sure you have been trying to manipulate OX40, Gitter, TGIT, TIM3 uh, as being also potential modulators, but today it remains not practice and routine, so something just to be further studied. But it's very important to show some developments. But of course, we have spent a lot of time to find what we call biomarkers, meaning trying to understand who are these patients who present with uh, an immunosensitivity, a tumor with an immunosensitivity, and these patients who present the characteristic of immunoresistant tumors. We have been defining these subgroups. I invite you to go through this wonderful publication, but you know many of these uh, immunosensitive tumors have a high PDL1, a high level of mutation, a high level of TILS, a high level of neoantigen, and an interferon gamma signature which is intact. Immunoresistant tumors have usually a lot of Treg, myeloid-derived suppressor cells. They have an IDO pathway activated, an adenosine pathway activated, and usually a, a very specific component of immune cell, which is immunorefractory. Of course, in lung cancer, and again, not with a lot of originality in, in the way we improve the immune response or we strengthen the immune system, we've been mainly using anti-PD-1 and anti-PDL-1 as well as CTLA-4. However, in lung cancer, all patients with metastatic disease will receive uh, immunotherapy as monotherapy in combination with chemo or with dual immunotherapy, including a CTLA-4 component, but apart from the very defined field of oncogene addiction, all these patients with wild-type tumor have to receive immunotherapy frontline. So let's try how this data move to the early disease. So first of all, maybe to the adjuvant setting. What is the arguments to imagine to try to implement immunotherapy in the adjuvant therapy? So first of all, the uh, always the important fear we have is surgical deal, delay. So putting everything in the adjuvant setting is uh, avoiding surgical delay. Surgery following neadjuvant immunotherapy has been thought to potentially be more difficult. We will discuss it later on, but of course it was a very thoughtful idea, or I would say concept, that had to be taken care of. Uh, we have proven benefit of adjuvant chemotherapy for stage two or three, so we know that adjuvant can cure. And of course, based on the old days of vaccines, immunotherapy was thought to be more effective in the setting of very minimal disease burden, the minimal amount of cancer cells. Is it valid with checkpoint? I, I would say today we don't have data, but that was true at the time of the, the old days of vaccines, the early days of vaccine. Chemotherapy, it's what we get with adjuvant chemotherapy. Remember this latest meta-analysis, basically, and to make it short, uh, across stage, uh, what we would call today two and three, you can obtain a five-year absolute benefit by adjuvant chemotherapy of 5%. And we have been trying to add immunotherapy to adjuvant chemo. Remember this MAGE A3 vaccine, which was done in the Magritte trial in resected patients, which unfortunately, despite a wonderful phase two with very promising data, the phase three was completely negative, showing that this vaccine alone after adjuvant chemo was not improving at all the fate of any subgroup of these patients treated in the Magritte trial. We tried and we failed. So, of course, now we have this new generation of immune, I would say, modulator, which uh, gives, rise, gives rise to uh, many clinical trials. These are the main five trials where basically you face the same paradigm of having patients 
receiving surgery, being randomized after surgery, having more or less chemotherapy, but being randomized, to make a long story short, to one year of anti-PD-1 or anti-PDL-1. All of these trials have one of the endpoints being DFS. Some of these trials have co-primary endpoint being OS or one of these endpoints in defined subgroup of patients, but DFS will be, I would say, the landmark of potential intertrial comparison we shouldn't, we shouldn't do, but we always do. So DFS is what is really being observed there. So with this new generation of adjuvant trials that I love because it brings science and maybe advances in what we do, is a generation of trials trying to understand who are the patients who, beyond surgery, beyond chemo, would need additional immunotherapy. These patients are the patients who still have disease but only minimal residual disease, non-measurable disease. And this minimal residual disease, as you know, is a target of many trials, but can now be assessed by many methodologies, very competitive field. In the Alchemist trial, one of the exploratory endpoints is to look at DFS and OS in the patients with uh, minimal residual disease uh, as defined by circulating DNA. And in the MERBED-1 trial, the primary endpoint is the, the DFS in patients with minimal residual disease. So what we know is probably very clear across trial is this idea of minimal residual disease being a prognostic factor impacting the outcome of patients after surgery is quite clear. I will show you a table that's a concept which is quite clear. How can you manage or change this poor prognosis by acting in any manner, including adding immunotherapy, is still to be proven. However, what we know is the prognostic impact. Of course, CTDNA technique is not only improving because of the post-surgery setting, but also because we hope that technique will help us identifying uh, uh, early, uh, an early detection of relapse and, of course, also monitor uh, efficacy of what we do and potential resistance emergence particularly with targeted therapy, but also with immunotherapy. But this is a table, just summarizing for you this concept that having a minimal residual disease after surgery or after chemoradiation, let's say after radical treatment for early disease, is strongly prognostic. If you can change it, it's still a question mark, but at least you know it is prognostic. And this is a paper published two days ago in the Annals of Oncology, which looks at many, many serial samples of patients using first tumor exome sequencing, identifying private signatures, and using this plasma and analyzed using patient-specific assays and showing, as you can see on the right-hand side, that this patient with residual ctDNA after surgery or definitive chemoradiation, and if you measure at the first time point after the end of treatment, whatever the treatment, and divide the patient between uh, residual, minimal residual ctDNA positive or ctDNA negative, you can see how the curves separate very easily on the left for survival, on the right for DFS. So can you act on it? Still a question mark, but at least it's prognostic. This is what we have as a concept of adjuvant. Let's go to the concept of neoadjuvant treatments. So first of all, we know since a while already that we could give neoadjuvant chemotherapy too. It is equivalent to adjuvant. There's only one randomized trial looking at it called the NATS trial, published a long time ago by Enriqueta Felipe. But this trial was showing, again, this absolute benefit of more or less 4 to 5%, but really showing that neoadjuvant chemo versus adjuvant chemo was giving the same benefit. 
Of course, this trial was slightly underpowered to detect very small differences, but what we could show in this technique and, and I would say way to manage patients, as we know also from the practice, is what you do in the neoadjuvant setting gives rise to a better compliance than what we do in the adjuvant setting. So maybe one of the benefits of any new neoadjuvant strategy might be the compliance uh, uh, to the treatment. But there are also some biological conce concepts that might guide you to maybe prefer, favor, uh, uh, the neoadjuvant immunotherapy as compared to adjuvant immunotherapy. First of all, scientifically speaking, you can imagine that in terms of antigen load and release from potential dying cells into the, the circulation, uh, the propensity, the proportionality uh, of this uh, important, I would say, immune stimulators will be way higher in the neoadjuvant than in the adjuvant setting, leading to a better priming of the immune system. Second, the fit uh, uh, host uh, uh, immune system and the fit, fit host can be met in the neoadjuvant setting. And the problem of the compliance in the, adjuvant, in the adjuvant setting is probably because of the detrimental effect of what you have done before. So you will meet in the neoadjuvant setting a fit immune system and also a host which will be a patient who will be more eligible for whatever strategy. The clonal evolution is an important point. When you do anything against the tumor being radiation, immunotherapy or chemotherapy, you induce a lot of new mutations, secondary mutations, subclonal mutations, leading to a tumor which is less heterogeneous, and I will discuss it later on. Of course, you have an opportunity to accurately study the effect of immunotherapy by having a biopsy before and to assess and access the tissue uh, in the surgical sample. And of course, you have an ability to access the efficacy of the therapy, the reduction of the presence of the tumor cells in the surgical sample, but also the radiological response. Of course, and we hope that neoadjuvant settings that what we discussed today might also shorten the time frame to complete the trial. Would we be able in the future to use a pathological endpoint as a surrogate of DFS or OS. Just to speak about the, clonal, the clonality of the mutation, remember this very interesting paper uh, published from Naya Rizvi uh, in Science showing that you can have some tumors with interesting mutation and a lot of mutation, but T cells look like to be reactive only to what we call clonal neoantigen, and that these subclonal neoantigens emerging upon chemotherapy, upon targeted therapy, upon immunotherapy, are not able to give rise to a strong specific immune response. And this was nicely shown in that publication, as well as many secondary publications looking at, uh, uh, at tumors and clonality of the mutation. And on the right-hand side, you can see this uh, last publication showing that tumor with a high clonal neoantigen burden and a low neoantigen heterogeneity have the most important probability of giving rise to an immune response. So that's probably why neoadjuvant, naive tumor, might be better for the immune system. The MICE model has proven that, or at least con uh, comforted the ID and this biological model. On the left-hand side, it's a triple negative breast cancer, a spontaneously metastatic mouse model, where they compared neoadjuvant to adjuvant IO with a prolonged survival of the mice with a neoadjuvant IO as compared to uh, adjuvant IO, and also correlated to this survival, an increased level of specific tumor-specific CD8 positive cells in the neoadjuvant setting. And 
on the left hand side it's a mouse model uh, the non-cell lung cancer over positive murine murine model which is a uh, lung cancer uh, with um, spontaneous uh, lung metastasis where they could see here again a better survival for neoadjuvant treatment in these mice models but also a decreased in secondary lung metastasis by giving neoadjuvant as compared to adjuvant so mice model did reproduce what the the story in the biology would have made us think or at least hypothesize initially. And we have some proofs. This is the first Patrick Ford paper in the New England, remember? Two cycles of nivolumab in the neoadjuvant setting. And this wonderful picture showing that before only two cycles of nivolumab, you have a tumor which looks like a little bit an immune desert with everything describing an immune response being absent, going after two cycles of nivolumab to a tumor full of CD8 positive and PD1 in positive immune cells really showing that this immunofluorescence, you can see that um, there are uh, many uh, new uh, positive immune markers showing that you can give rise rapidly and efficiently to an immune response. And this is a big list of ongoing phase three neoadjuvant trials. We'll discuss a little bit about it today, showing you that this effort is being, uh, uh, I would say, currently undergoing in lung cancer. And you can see here the strategy is slightly different from what I have shown before because patients are randomized before anything at the time of diagnosis to receive neoadjuvant chemo most of the time versus chemo IO, then is surgery. And then for most of the trial, it's a continuation of the IO for up to a year, except for one that we will discuss later on, but all the other ones continue to up to a year. All of these trials have an EFS endpoint, but some of them have also a pathological endpoint that is very interesting, and that's what we'd like to look a little deeper today. And beyond lung cancer, let's also maybe have a, a short look of what we have in hands as being prescribers, physicians, doctors uh, uh, in, in the main killers, for example. This is what the FDA has now approved in terms of neoadjuvant or adjuvant immunotherapy today. I will show you some curves later on. I think it can be helpful as a reminder. First of all, and it's going to be one of the topics later on, uh, there was an approval very recently of neoadjuvant uh, a treatment of nivolumab in a resectable non-small cell lung cancer with platinum doublet chemotherapy. It represents the first FDA approval for neoadjuvant therapy in the context of early stage non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, the first table is nivolumab. Looking at nivolumab, you can also give adjuvant nivolumab in patients with urothelial carcinoma who are at high risk of recurrence after radical resection. You can give adjuvant nivolumab in patients with completely resected esophageal or gastroesophageal junction cancer with residual pathologic disease who have received neoadjuvant chemorad. And you can give adjuvant nivolumab in patients with melanoma with lymph node involvement or metastatic disease who have undergone complete resection. Remember in melanoma, that is this very specific definition of fully resected melanoma, even if metastatic. For ipilimumab, you can give ipilimumab again in melanoma in patients with lymph node uh, involvement, significant lymph node involvement, uh, but no metastasis there. Pembrolizumab can be given in the triple negative breast cancer context in combination with chemotherapy and again with continuation of pembrolizumab up to one year. It can be given in patients with renal cell carcinoma at high risk of relapse following nephrectomy or following full resection of metastatic lesions. You can give pembrolizumab in the adjuvant treatment of melanoma, but not only stage 3, but also stage 2 now, 2B and 2C. And you can give an 
I would say, adjuvant pembrolizumab or pembrolizumab in the context of this specific early disease, patients with BCG unresponsive, high-risk, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer who are not eligible for a cystectomy. And last but not least, atezolizumab can be given in the adjuvant setting of stage 2, 3 non-small cell lung cancer following chemotherapy in patients with tumor PDL1 positive. This will be discussed later on. Some curse for you. Remember this urethelial carcinoma? These patients have tumors at high risk of, um, of relapse, T3, T4, or N positive, or have received potentially um, neoadjuvant cisplatin with after neoadjuvant cisplatin T2, T3, or N positive disease, and they are randomized for this adjuvant nivolumab. And you can see there were two co-primary endpoints, DFS in ITT or DFS in P1 positive tumor, and giving one year of nivolumab was improving both uh, DFS, both, uh, out, both endpoints uh, in this uh, high-risk urothelial carcinoma, and it's now a standard of care. So second, esophageal gastric cancers. This patient received uh, chemoradiation, radical chemoradiation, for stage 2 and stage 3, esophageal or gastroesophageal uh, junction uh, cancer. Uh, and uh, they present with remaining tumor being T1 or more or N1 or more, and these patients can receive one year of adjuvant nivolumab. And in this patient, you can see this hazard ratio of 0.69 after two years of follow-up, again, giving rise to a standard of care of this patient who cannot present with a complete response after radical chemo rad. Breast cancer, a large field uh, of research, and of course, a lot of patients. You know that now neoadjuvant chemotherapy is proposed to patients who have uh, tumors uh, which are large uh, or which are nodal positive, uh, T2, T3, T4, uh, N1. And uh, in that context, uh, it was given pembrolizumab in combination with carboplatin um, and paclitaxel followed by cyclophosphamide from famide and doxorubicin, the usual six months of chemotherapy, uh, and pembrolizumab was continued for one year. And as you can see, there were two co-primary endpoints. The first one was a complete response, pathological complete response, and interestingly, in breast cancer, in triple negative breast cancer, it's quite interesting to see that PDL1 doesn't count. You can see the same improvement in a complete pathological response in PDL1 positive or in PDL1 negative. So this is not a biomarker there. And you can see this New England published last year by my colleague Peter Schmidt showing you a very important for breast cancer. It's a very important EFS improvement of almost 8%. was is still immature, but already showing some difference to be observed. So very important triple negative breast cancer, one year of pembrolizumab, six months before, six months after, and the usual neoadjuvant chemo. Renal cell carcinoma, these patients who have uh, these uh, tumors, intermediate high risk, or have metastasis, which have fully been fully resected. In the New England paper, it's only 6% of them who were metastatic, but you can already see here a very important DFS benefit of 0.68 in favor of one year of pembrolizumab in the adjuvant setting. Again, survival is immature, but you can guess how the curve is moving over time and always maybe uh, imagine some benefit to be observed. And then the large field of melanoma. Melanoma in the adjuvant setting reproduced quite a lot what we have been seeing in the metastatic setting. So first we compared uh, ipilimumab versus nivolumab. And like in the metastatic setting, nivolumab is better than ipilimumab. But remember in that trial, ipilimumab was given at 10 mg per kg, which we would not do anymore now. Also giving rise to potentially not 
not manageable toxicity or difficult to manage toxicities. Then we continued to move with some hopes in trying to give dual inhibition, like in some patients we do in metastatic melanoma with epinevo. This is a very negative adjuvant trial where epinevo was not better than nivolumab monotherapy. But for the first time, the colleagues of melanoma decided to use epilodos, one mg per kick. So some think that it might be one of the reasons this trial is negative. Maybe the other reason might also be that the toxicity of epilimab was so high in the adjuvant setting that the drug exposure was extremely reduced, very short, and maybe only the intensity of the experimental treatment with epilimumab was too low to really show a difference. And very disappointingly, the ITT population, as well as the most interesting one, the PDL1 negative populations, both are completely negative. And of course, you also have pembrolizumab in melanoma. With this nice trial, this is the first trial performed in stage 3, showing that one year of adjuvant pembrolizumab in stage 2 are giving rise to an amazing hazard ratio of 0.56. And you have seen at ESMO last year that the same trial it is the keynote uh, six, 726 was showing a benefit uh, in stage 2 also. So even more early disease, almost all melanoma patients could receive now one year of pembrolizumab with the same kind of hazard ratio uh, in that setting. We will have to refine everything we do, particularly in the adjuvant setting, by using the best biomarkers to select the patient who can benefit from receiving up to one year of treatment. This is something we have not been very, I would say, successful in applying to advanced disease, despite this long list of approved biomarkers called immune immunotherapy, immune biomarkers, but really not having met the daily routine practice, maybe with the exceptions of PDL1 immunohistochemistry, and for some of you, MSI and maybe TMB. So, of course, we need to move forward with biomarkers to try to make sure beyond cell-free DNA, circulating DNA, but beyond circulating DNA, who are the patients who can specifically benefit from an immune stimulation according to their phenotype and the genotype of the tumor. Of course, to bridge with the next talk, we need to keep in mind that the assessment of what we do in the adjuvant, new adjuvant setting can be done looking at OS, but many adjuvant uh, approvals have also been based on disease-free survival. Think about what I presented before. Trials in new adjuvant setting provide an opportunity to potentially even make it better using an assessing pathological response as an early surrogate marker for survival outcomes. And you can see, if you look at your PubMed, there are many trials now, for example, in breast cancer, correlating very strongly the pathological response with OS and PFS make it very strong. In lung cancer, we have been using two definitions of pathological response. The pathological complete response with the absence of viable tumor cells, but also what you call the MPR, the major pathological response, pathologic response, which is the, the persistence of less than 10% of viable tumor cells in the treated tumor bed. So something which the pathologist should understand, we hope it is the case, as being a definition of a drastic, a dramatic response to the neoadjuvant immunotherapy or chemotherapy. Uh, so we have major efforts ongoing to try to standardize this uh, pathologic assessments, particularly looking at MPR. And my last slide is just to show you how the societies, and here it is the Inter International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, how these societies try to give guidance to pathologists in order for them 
to use the same definition of MPR, major pathological response, trying to illustrate how you count it, right? What are viable cells? What is necrosis? What is the stroma? In order to make sure that there's no discrepancies between the way we try to create a surrogate endpoint for neoadjuvant immunotherapy. Well, this being said, this uh, definition is one uh, uh, in the middle of some definitions also sometimes defined by the clinical trials and the protocols. But at the end of this definition, we will have to be able to make sure that the correlation of NPR and other outcomes is established, uh, as well as pathological response, particularly in lung cancer, where it's still not the case as compared to breast cancer, for example. That was an amazing uh, tour of everything that's happening in uh, periadjuvant uh, therapy for a number of malignancies. Um, uh, it's a great honor to be here today to speak to you about one of my favorite topics, which is uh, perioperative immunotherapy for lung cancer and how it relates to uh, how pathological response influences what we do. So um, I, think, I think Dr. P Peters covered this. It's not a new concept to give um, systemic therapy before surgery uh, for locally advanced early stage uh, lung cancer. This is uh, one of the two pivotal trials uh, in the early 90s showing a dramatic overall and disease-free survival benefit to the addition of periadjuvant uh, chemotherapy for stage 3 patients. Um, in fact, this study had to be stopped early for ethical reasons because the effect was so strong. So for a long time, we've been thinking that this is an important thing to do. Um, and yet, when we look at the um, uh, adoption of neoadjuvant therapy in the community uh, for lung cancer specifically, it's very rare, in fact, in North America that anyone uses it, and it's probably true for the rest of the world as well. But you also see the significant number of patients who would normally be eligible for adjuvant therapy, and you've heard of the benefits, don't actually make it to treatment and will be treated with surgery alone. We've covered this. We know that the, whether, if you were to choose between one or the other, it's not going to be because one gives better or worse uh, survival uh, benefits. They're equivalent in that regard. Um, but we have some very interesting data, and this was just published last month from the Alchemist trial, which you've heard uh, regarding the design. So a large study. We've uh, looked at 2,833 patients who underwent resection and tried to see if, uh, what, what happened to them in, in regards to what is the standard of care uh, adjuvant cytotoxic therapy, and only 57% of those patients actually made it to adjuvant chemotherapy, leaving a significant number undertreated. Of those, uh, we only have 44% who completed four cycles, so the compliance issue is, is a real one. And with regards to what is the guideline concordant uh, choice of chemotherapy, which is cisplatin-based chemo, only a very small proportion actually get that. So while we know this works, we can hardly get patients to get the well-documented standard of care. Um, and the reason for that is that it's fairly toxic. And uh, my choice when I see my patients in clinic and why I encourage them to adopt a new adjuvant strategy is in relation to the tolerability. This is a study from Sloan Kettering. I would think if anyone can give safe chemo, it would be the folks at Sloan. And even in their hands, uh, they had twice as many grade three adverse events in the adjuvant-treated patients versus the new adjuvant-treated patients for the same survival outcomes. So, that's just conventional chemotherapy. What if we add modern uh, therapeutics like tyrosine kinase inhibitors or immunotherapy? Well, I, I don't want to be a naysayer about adjuvant therapy, but the, the signals aren't dramatic. We're not seeing wide splaying of the curves in this regard. It's immature data, granted. But with median follow-up approaching three years, we'd like to see better differences. 
Um, so when I think of how I can improve the care of my patients, I like this process map uh, to sort of figure out where I can make uh, inroads for our patients. Um, and I'll just talk about surgery briefly here. Uh, that's what I do. I'm a surgeon. Uh, I happen to uh, have trained and work at the place where the first uh, pneumonectomy using individual hyalur ligation of the vessels and bronchus was performed at the Royal Victoria Hospital in 1933. And if you read this paper, uh, you should sit down because before they made it to the first successful one, there were a lot of on-table deaths and disastrous outcomes. Uh, it's not a great operation, and I think still to this day, although we've made a lot of progress. Surgery remains uh, the highest risk portion of the patient's trajectory with early stage cancer. This is what a pneumonectomy looks like today when done through a standard thoracotomy. It's invasive procedure, there's uh, serious complications, chronic pain issues associated with it. And although we're able to do minimally invasive surgery, this is a relatively simple case, a small tumor. We can go through a single incision, we do nerve blocks for good pain control, we can dissect all the lymph nodes, remove the lobe safely, the patient goes home in a day or two. Um, it's still a high-risk procedure, patients can bleed, patients can have complications. So we would like to mitigate the risks of surgery, and um, this was a study that really dictated the management of locally advanced lung cancer done in the early 2000s, where it was investigated whether surgery could be avoided altogether for stage three patients. Uh, where they would be treated with concurrent chemoradiation and then randomized to either surgical consolidation or not. And while there was a disease-free survival uh, signal, a uh, benefit there, the um, hazard ratio for uh, overall survival uh, was crossing unity and was called a negative trial. And yet, um, this was a post hoc analysis. When we looked at surgical toxicity and how that influences the long-term outcomes of patients, it's a very real phenomenon. So patients who had a lobectomy removing a more uh, uh, conservative amount of lung, had significant benefit from, from the addition of surgery, whereas those who had pneumonectomy had significant harm. So this influenced the thoracic surgical community quite significantly because we, we realized that what's given before can really affect the outcomes from our operations for our patients, and certainly we, we were not interested in harming them. But we knew for a long time that pneumonectomy is a, is a bad uh, operation. It's associated with much higher mortality rates, much more death from non-oncologic causes. So even though you feel like you may have better resection margins, better um, oncologic control, patients die of pneumonias, myocardial infarctions, and other complications because uh, it's nice to have more lung. Um, and one of the greatest advances in, in surgery, uh, in thoracic surgery over the last 20 years, has been the adoption of more complex resectional techniques like uh, sleeve lobectomy or pulmonary arterioplasty, specifically to preserve the lung. And this is um, a study down uh, one of the biggest uh, and most busy um, thoracic surgery centers in the world at the Shanghai Pulmonary Hospital, where they show that there is a learning curve to, to knowing how to do these operations, but you can achieve uh, excellent outcomes by adopting these techniques that aren't uh, detrimental to the patient in terms of oncologic outcomes. And part of the reason why I'm, I'm keen to talk about organ preservation in, in surgery is that we have some interesting signals. This is probably one of the most pivotal studies that's been done for stage one lung cancer in, uh, in decades uh, from the Japanese cooperative group where they randomized uh, 1,100 patients to either lobectomy or segmentectomy where we're removing a sub portion of the uh, lobe in an anatomic fashion, and stunningly, this surprised most people, uh, the survival seemed to be better with the patients who had a segmentectomy, despite almost twice as many uh, recurrences locally. 
So there's something to having this vital organ inside you and not in the pathologist's office. Um, and while that is kind of revolutionary in thoracic surgery, it's not a new concept for breast cancer, that people have been trying to de-escalate surgery for breast cancer for well over 100 years. And that's been enabled largely by the um, excellent trials that were done, but also by the application of systemic therapy, and neoadjuvant therapy has been a pivotal part of that. This is, uh, again, going back to the results that Dr. Peters uh, was talking about. If half your patients with conventional chemo have a path response, maybe they don't even really need to undergo surgery, and now it's close to two-thirds when you add pembrolizumab, who have a complete pathological response. So it's very thought-provoking about maybe there's a medical cure taking place here. And, in fact, uh, oncologists in the breast space have started to design uh, trials to investigate whether that can be done, but the key step is being able to predict the event of pathological complete response. If you can't predict that it happens, you can't really safely uh, assign a patient to non-surgical uh, therapy. A lot of what we've talked about in the early stages has not benefited from all the great work that's been done in stage four, where we've really shown that if you enrich for good biomarkers, you're going to get better results. And this is an example, one of the few in the early stage space, looking at colorectal cancer in patients who have MMR-deficient uh, early-stage colorectal cancer receiving IPI and NEVO, that 19 out of 20 patients got a major pathological response. That's stunning. Maybe it's like a colitis. You treat it with antibiotics with a short course of medications and you've cured the patient. Extremely thought-provoking. Now, lung patients uh, often have a lot of comorbidities. Uh, they're smokers, not infrequently. Um, they have a whole bunch of other things that can uh, lead to complications during surgery. And we know in the upfront surgery space that when we have a bit of, take a bit of time to prehabilitate them, get, give them exercise programs, improve their nutrition, prepare them psychologically for the operation, we improve their general health, physical health, mental health, and this leads to shortened hospital stays for the patients. This is a randomized trial that was done at our hospital. So, in that setting, we have a problem where if we uh, don't operate on them quickly, we have this unchecked cancer progression and fear for development of metastasis if we wait too long. But there is benefit in terms of improving their fitness during that time so we can perform safe, effective surgery. Um, we've been uh, pretty aggressive in terms of uh, adopting neoadjuvant therapy at our hospital, and this is just a small study with a few patients, but what prehabilitation seems to do when it's concurrently administered with neoadjuvant therapy is at least maintain the, the, the um, functional status of the patient. And what we seem to see is that their length of stay in the hospital is quite a bit shorter. Uh, so we really think there's something to this. And what's very important when you approach a patient with this is they're not waiting for surgery anymore. They're preparing for surgery. They have a strategic plan. They're addressing their potentially micrometastatic disease. We're shrinking the tumors with these highly effective treatments. And we're coming to surgery in the most prepared way that we can be. We don't, we're not in a rush to get them fit in two weeks. We have three months to get them ready, which is usually ample time. If they're smoking, we can get them to quit smoking. If they're malnourished, we can get them um, to improve that as well. So really, it's out with the old, in with the neo, um, and I think that's how patients ought to be treated. So how effective are these regimens in non-small cell lung cancer? Well, Dr. Peters uh, hinted at uh, Patrick Ford's uh, and, and colleagues' really pivotal study showing a 45% major pathological response with just two doses of nivolumab. I mean, that's amazing. Uh, if you were to give three cycles of chemo on average, 
maybe you'd have a 15% NPR based on historical studies. So it was really quite a significant advance. If you added chemotherapy to that, this is Dr. Shu's study. Uh, it's not just NPRs that we're seeing. A significant proportion of the patients are having complete pathological response. This is stunning, stunning data. I remember when uh, Dr. Provencio showed uh, his data from the Spanish group's trial, the Nadim trial, giving preoperative chemo nivolumab at World Lung in 2018. I thought I was going to be out of a job. I mean, I might still be out of a job, but 63% PCR is a big deal. And you're seeing the patients who never made it to surgery living long without disease. Maybe those patients had PCRs too and were cured. Extremely uh, thought-provoking data. And when we look at the, now we have uh, three-year survival data from the Nadim trial, uh, half of these patients had multi-station N2. In most hospitals around the world, that's unresectable stage three disease, not because we can't go get those lymph nodes, just because people feel that it's uh, not fair to put those patients through surgery. But look, they're doing great. Um, 82% overall survival. No one would ever think that that would be the case for stage three, not, not me five years ago. So this is really, really a big deal. But we have a problem as surgeons. We don't know what we're dealing with when the patient comes to the operating room. It's a black box. I didn't go through this for sake of time, but none of the radiographic data really helps us know if the patient has had a complete response. And traditionally, in thoracic surgery, we're to resect the tumor bed because we don't really know um, if, if we're going to leave disease behind when we don't. Now, this um, team in China looked at, uh, this is off-protocol, real-world data from giving chemoimmunotherapy prior to surgery. And I think what's really impactful is that this short course of treatment really impacted, now it's not prospectively collected data, but it seems to have really impacted what they thought they would do and what they actually had to do. So you see far fewer pneumonectomies getting done, far more lobectomies, um, and that, like I said, is a big deal for patients on its own. And in their hands, they had a lot of patients get complete pathological responses. The dark blue columns are patients who only had two cycles. So maybe we can tailor the preoperative regimen if we really had a good way of knowing who had a complete response so we can de-escalate or escalate accordingly. And three-quarters of those patients had minimally invasive resections, and that's valuable to our patients as well. So what about prediction? What if we knew that we had a PCR? Is surgery still required? Can we consolidate by other means with radiation? Would that actually be less um, toxic to the patients? Can we tailor the surgery? If we do tailor the surgery, are we compromising the R0 resection rates, which we know, at least with what we know up to now, is important? And how do we optimize long-term morbidity while minimizing the morbidity of the treatment itself? This is great data from the LCMC3 trial, where two doses of atezolizumab were given before surgery, um, looking at ctDNA by Dr. Chris and Esmo last fall. And I think the graph on the left is, is compelling. Look, the ctDNA levels just incrementally go down with those two doses, and then thankfully there's good news. Surgery still helps as well to uh, remove whatever minimal residual disease might be circulating or being shed. So uh, again, very compelling data here. Uh, the technology, as Dr. Peters hinted to, is rapidly evolving. This is a bioarchives uh, study from Dan Landau's team where, again, the uh, new adjuvant trial of low-dose radiation and immunotherapy that Dr. Altorki devised uh, was, was leveraged for discovery, again, showing that uh, this highly sensitive method of detection using whole genome sequencing um, is extremely helpful in terms of tracking the evolution of disease. And, again, I'm relieved to see that the uh, curves go down further after surgery, and I still have work to do. 
Um, the NeoStar trial is uh, just a fantastic example of how translational science can emerge from a neoadjuvant platform. I really think it's unparalleled in terms of scientific discovery. Uh, we, we're corroborating the findings around T-cell uh, receptor richness and clonality and how these things influence pathological response. The microbiome seems to influence uh, immunotherapy-related complications, but also pathological response. And these are not just things that are biomarkers of response, but things that we can take action upon. And I think in a structured prehabilitation model, we can uh, implement nutritional supplementation and exercise that can also influence all, a lot of these factors. We're very interested at McGill in multiplex molecular imaging. We've used imaging mass cytometry to characterize uh, lesions. It's highly specific, uh, uh, monoclonal antibody-directed um, molecular imaging with up to 40 targets on a single slide. Just for representation, I'm showing you seven here where you can layer all these things. And then um, we've developed the um, algorithms for cell segmentation analysis uh, so that you can assign lineages to these cells and look at the neighborhoods that are interacting with each other. And when you apply machine learning to these samples, uh, we hope that this will be out sometime in the near future, we can predict progression for early-stage patients with an AUC that's well above 0.9, close to 0.95. So what if we use this kind of technology on biopsy specimens to predict response to immunotherapy? The impact could be dramatic. But all of this will require convergence of multiple tiers of data. It's, uh, it's going to be complex. No one thing. Maybe the radiology is important, but only if you add the ctDNA and some other factors to be able to predict, um, predict response. And so we need some mathematicians and computer scientists to help us. Um, so the scientific opportunities are there, uh, but really I want to close with a couple uh, um, thoughts about our teammates uh, in, in the care of patients. So the pathologists right now are truly our unsung heroes. They, uh, they're down in the lab. We don't get to see them. The patients don't get to see them, but they, they really help us understand what's happening with our patients. It's always been true, but it's truer than ever now. This is a patient who had a very large tumor you can see uh, in, in his left lung. It's invading the uh, pulmonary artery. Um, we uh, treated him on a chemoimmunotherapy uh, protocol, had a partial response radiographically, and in the OR you can see my feeble attempt here to try and uh, save the lobe, but it was just all fused on the pulmonary artery. There was no way not to take his, his whole lung. Uh, so we did a pneumonectomy. Fortunately, he did well. He was a fit patient was prehabilitated, and this is the specimen. So now we know that maybe a quarter or up to two-thirds will have no residual disease. The pathologist has to start looking through this and confirm whether that's true or not, because that may have prognostic and maybe therapeutic implications for the patient. I have phenomenal pathologists. I love them. They're my favorite people. Um, and this is what, uh, what Pierre Fissé did. He went and looked through all of these blocks, and he found one little focus here of disease, 0.3% viable tumor cells. And he didn't stop there. He sent this for next-generation sequencing and found that the patient had a MET-exon-14 mutation. That's valuable information moving forward. Maybe this will always be sequestered, maybe we had given another round of treatment, it would have all disappeared, but maybe this is going to show up in his bone or brain in a year or two, hopefully not. But uh, again, very interesting information that's gleaned from, from these uh, efforts. But you can, tell, you can only imagine the time it takes to assess that specimen. 
Um, and we need better technology to, to uh, support the pathologist's work. And this is uh, work that's being presented at this year's AACR by Janice Taub's team from Johns Hopkins looking at machine learning to assess uh, pathological response. Understanding that response is existing on a continuum, and NPR was chosen just because PCR was such a rare thing in lung. It was like 5% of patients, so you couldn't really design a trial based on it. 10% NPR was a more reasonable endpoint. But now we're going to have pathological response existing on a continuum. The final thing I'll talk about is the importance of building a team. And uh, the man on the left there is Dr. Mulder. He's my surgical mentor. And about 15 years ago, he started this lung cancer navigation team because we understood that patients had to go through an enormous amount just to get to treatment. And once they had a diagnosis in a stage, it was you know, no one path was, was clear. You, patients have a number of options open to them. And um, what was really important is to get the team around the patient live when you're seeing them so that they can uh, be assessed fully and be offered the best possible care. This is just a, a sample of what a patient might go through. You know, they'll have a CT scan and there's a tumor. They'll go see a pulmonologist. After a range of PET scan, now we need to do some invasive imaging. Is it an invasive staging, sorry? That small biopsy needs to manage adequately. There needs to be sequencing. Then they get discussed at tumor board, only to realize, oh, we don't have a proper biopsy for that patient to be enrolled on a trial. Back to square one, another biopsy. If they agree, then you get them to sign consent, and stuff has to get sent off. Anyways, it's insane what we have to do. So what we implemented um, to, to facilitate that process is these navigation rounds where the therapeutic team comes and, and, and gets involved at the earliest point in the trajectory so that we can determine, is this patient interested in a trial? Can we, uh, can we set them up and make sure that their whole diagnostic and staging trajectory is aimed towards what the most likely uh, best therapeutic plan is for them that fits their, their wishes? So that's been very valuable. So, and what is multidisciplinary care? Well, all the disciplines are, are more or less, I'm sure I'm missing some here, but most of them are represented here. But most places will, will work in a siloed fashion where the patient will travel from one clinic to another to go through their care, and the arrows go back and forth because they might go back and forth through all these different places before they finally make their way into survivorship mode. But I think the more we can bring all these different teams to the patient in a consolidated, dedicated lung cancer clinic, I think it's extremely valuable. I think teamwork isn't easy. Let me tell you, it's been a challenge to set this up in my place. Uh, doctors aren't uh, always you know, willing to sit in a room and get along with everyone. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, but it's been extremely rewarding and valuable, and I think there's a lot to be gained from it. All right. Well, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Mark Awad. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist at uh, Dana-Farber in Boston. It's very nice to see you all in person. And um, as we've been seeing some of these major phase three clinical trials read out in the neoadjuvant-adjuvant setting in the past year or so, this has been a very exciting time. For early-stage lung cancer, our standards of care really haven't changed much in the past couple of decades until uh, recently. So we're going to spend some time reviewing the recent data, where do things stand today, and, and how have these trials already shaped practice. All right, so we're going to fly uh, through quickly since a lot of these data have been uh, presented and published. Um, but we'll start with the Checkmate 816 study, and we're very excited to hopefully see some additional data presented on Monday here at this meeting on the event-free survival data that have led to the uh, a recent approval in the United States. And for Checkmate 816, here's the trial design. So patients with uh, stage 1b to 3a operable lung cancer 
uh, were eligible. Uh, if they were known to have an EGFR or ALK rearrangement, they were excluded. And patients were randomized to chemotherapy, chemotherapy plus nivolumab, and there was an arm of IPI plus Nevo that was uh, not carried out further. And here you can see the baseline characteristics um, of these 179 patients in each group, uh, fairly well balanced by histology, smoking status, PDL1 score, and uh, tumor mutational burden. So a key question is, um, when you are spending this time in the neoadjuvant setting, are patients unable to get to surgery with this kind of approach, which is, of course, a big concern for uh, all of us, especially with our surgical colleagues. And here you can see on the left is the patients who got uh, nivolumab plus chemotherapy. 83% of patients received definitive surgery. 16% of uh, surgeries were canceled. On the right was the chemotherapy control arm. And here you can see that there were more cancellations of surgery, 21% versus 75% uh, receiving surgery. So it seemed that, if anything, the addition of immunotherapy to chemotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting led to more successful surgeries. And this was the key endpoint, uh, one of the two primary endpoints that was presented at uh, uh, AACR at this meeting last year, which was the pathologic complete response rate. And this isn't something that we were used to talking about in lung cancer since it was so infrequent. But here you can see that the addition of nivolumab to chemotherapy increased the path CR rate from 2.2% in the control arm, which is quite low with chemotherapy alone, to 24% with chemo plus nevo. So on the left here is the intention to treat population, including those individuals that didn't make it to surgery. On the right in the upper panel are the patients that did have successful surgery. And here you can see the path CR rate for patients that did go to surgery was 30%. And it seemed that the addition of nivolumab to chemotherapy was uh, more favorable in terms of increasing the pathologic complete response difference across all of these different subgroups by uh, stage, so including the stage 1Bs to 2s, 3As by histology. Um, it seems like there is perhaps more of a benefit among patients with a history of tobacco use, although the never smoking population was relatively small with 39 uh, patients. And interestingly, there was a benefit to the addition of nivolumab, both in the PD-1 negatives and the PD-1 positives, and regardless of TMB with a single cutoff of 12.3 mutations per megabase. The choice of neoadjuvant chemotherapy of cisplatin or carboplatin also didn't seem to make a big difference. And I think what we'll be very eager to see during Monday's presentation is, do all of these PATH-CR subgroups hold up for the event-free or disease-free survival? And here, very impressively, you can see the pathologic uh, regression, the depth of pathologic uh, response uh, was much higher in patients that received chemotherapy plus nivolumab with an impressive number of path CRs as well as major path responses. And you can see how poorly chemotherapy alone does uh, in the uh, figure on the right. Importantly, we see that um, the path CR rate was increased with the addition of nivolumab regardless of stage. So here you can see the stage 1B, 2A, 2B, and 3A and impressive increases in the path CR rate across these different stages, although, again, the subgroup uh, numbers are relatively small across these different uh, figures here. How well is this tolerated? And, and you can see there are, of course, some concerns about giving immunotherapy in the preoperative setting and uh, raising the question of a serious immunologic toxicity or an IRAE, but you can see, generally speaking, the rate of high-grade adverse events was very comparable between the uh, chemo-nevo arm as well as the chemotherapy arm. And in general, um, this type of regimen, I think, in the metastatic setting and as well as the uh, early stage setting is, is relatively 
uh, well tolerated for patients. Now, how can we use information to really help understand which patients uh, will need more therapy? What will we under understand going into surgery about the risk of finding residual disease at the time of surgery? So this is looking at ctDNA clearance uh, prior uh, to surgery. So this is looking between uh, cycle one, day one, to cycle three, day one. So this is before they, they go to surgery. And you can see that among patients who have uh, chemotherapy plus nivolumab, there was a higher ctDNA clearance rate. And among patients with ctDNA clearance, you can see uh, that those with clearance had a higher path CR rate, and those without ctDNA clearance, whether it was chemotherapy or chemo plus nevo, were very unlikely to have a pathologic complete response rate. So while we don't use this uh, currently in, in routine clinical practice, I think using ctDNA going into surgery will give us some hopeful indication of what the surgeon might expect to find since the imaging, as Dr. Spicer said, doesn't really always track with what uh, our surgeons will find or what our pathologists will see under the microscope. And you can see that in terms of the type of uh, surgeries that our patients received, that those who received nivolumab plus, chemothera uh, plus chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone had uh, numerically uh, increases in minimally invasive uh, types of approaches and a lower rate of conversion to open thoracotomies here. And importantly, as we are all concerned about the uh, risks to a pneumonectomy, numerically there were fewer pneumonectomies in patients who received the combination of immunotherapy plus chemotherapy. So it seems that uh, incorporation of immunotherapy doesn't uh, per se increase surgical risk and if anything may lead to uh, more uh, 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 favorable types of operations, and we'll, we'll be uh, interested in, in discussing this during some of our uh, case discussions at the end. When we look at the uh, complication rate in, in the 90-day window after surgery, again, we're not seeing uh, any significant increase in uh, either low-grade or high-grade uh, adverse events in the post-operative period among patients that got immunotherapy. So again, uh, very comparable and favorable uh, side effect profiles, both um, in terms of the more common and, and less common uh, side effects as, as shown here. Does this increase hospital stay? No, um, and, and whether you're looking at uh, North America where there's a very short hospital stay or Europe and Asia, um, the addition of nivolumab to chemotherapy did not increase hospitalization and in fact, if anything, may have led to shorter uh, length of hospital stays. According to new data presented at AACR 2022, and published in the New England Journal of Medicine. After a minimal follow-up of 21 months and a median follow-up of 29.5 months, event-free survival, the other co-primary endpoint of the study was met at the first pre-specified interim analysis. Median event-free survival was 31.6 months with nivolumab plus chemotherapy and 20.8 months with chemotherapy alone, representing an absolute improvement of almost one year. The hazard ratio was 0.63, crossing the efficacy boundary with a p-value of 0.0052. The one-year event-free survival was 76%, and the two-year event-free survival was 64% in the experimental arm. Further analyses showed that the event-free survival was consistently improved with nivolumab plus chemotherapy across most subgroups. An exploratory analysis showed that regardless of treatment arm, achieving pathologic complete response led to improved event-free survival.
The finding that event-free survival was improved in patients with a pathologic complete response compared with those without suggests that pathologic complete response is an early indicator of therapeutic benefit with nivolumab plus chemotherapy. The preliminary overall survival analysis showed a trend of improvement with nivolumab plus chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone, with a hazard ratio of 0.57. The study continues to mature. And this was a very recent approval, and we're all uh, currently working to incorporate this and build the chemotherapy immunotherapy order sets for our patients so that we can uh, administer this uh, as rapidly as possible in routine clinical practice. But the study raises many remaining questions, so um, we'll be looking to see these questions with Monday's presentation. So how does the regimen perform in different subgroups? For, for example, the pd one negative populations, the low positive or high positive, is there an impact of smoking status stage? Does this work equally well in squamous and non-squamous? And then what will be the relationship between ma major pathologic response, path response, and event-free survival? And a really important question to accelerate drug approval in early-stage lung cancer is, like in breast cancer, can we start to use these as surrogate endpoints to uh, rapidly lead to new drug approval, or will we need to wait years to see the event-free or uh, overall survival readouts? How closely is ctDNA clearance before or after surgery associated with EFS? And again, can we start to incorporate additional uh, measurable biomarkers for our patients? What we don't know, are there certain molecular subtypes that benefit more or less with this regimen? So um, we'll talk a little bit about EGFR and ALK, but there are now many genomic subtypes of lung cancer. And even within uh, molecularly defined subtypes, there are co-mutations that may impact the efficacy of immunotherapy. One example is KRAS mutant lung cancer. Some KRAS mutant lung cancers can do extremely well with immunotherapy. Uh, however, co-mutations in genes such as STK11, KEEP1, uh, predict for uh, worse responses to immunotherapy in general. So we'll, we'll need to start parsing out these subgroups as we learn more information about our, our patients and their cancers. And can we overlay other biomarkers, as, as Dr. Peters said, such as tumor mutational burden, immune cell infiltration, certain other immune uh, checkpoints or activation markers? And really an important question is, who needs adjuvant therapy um, and what is the best regimen depending on the pathologic response? So we saw a number of the trials not only are incorporating neoadjuvant immunotherapy, but extend that adjuvant immunotherapy for one year out after surgery. And does everybody need that? Are we giving too much treatment to too many patients, or can we further refine which patients really need that uh, extended duration of treatment after surgery? And we're seeing some differences between trials. It's always difficult to compare, but um, as Dr. Spicer said, the pathologic complete response rate was different between the NADIM study as well as Checkmate A16. There were slight differences in the regimens, the populations, but I think we'll, we'll really need to refine our understanding of um, some of the differences that we may see between trials, which we'll come to as we talk about some of our adjuvant studies next. So now what about uh, adjuvant therapy? And this was approved um, uh, already sooner than the neoadjuvant study, so we're all familiar with the phase three Empower 010 study. And I think an important uh, piece to mention, as Dr. Peters was mentioning, is that where does the randomization occur in neoadjuvant versus adjuvant studies? So in this trial, patients uh, had to have already had their uh, resection. Uh, patients with EGFR and ALK-positive lung cancer could enroll and patients had to have had at least one cycle of chemotherapy. So as Dr. Spicer said, there is a lot of drop-off uh, in standard of care, you know, patients not getting to surgery or patients 
uh, in the post-operative period, not getting adjuvant chemotherapy. There's a large fraction of patients that will never get to this point. So this is a pretty selected population. Everybody who was randomized to receiving adjuvant atezolizumab or best supportive care already got through their surgery. They recovered. They were strong enough in the recovery period to receive at least one dose of adjuvant chemotherapy at the time of uh, randomization to immunotherapy or best supportive care. So when we look at the general outcomes of this population, even in the control group, they tend to do much better than what we are, we're seeing in some of the neoadjuvant studies. And you can see that the patient characteristics were relatively balanced between the atezolizumab and best supportive care arms based on, uh, again, the histology, the pd one status, the lymph node involvement, the type of surgery. And importantly, um, shown here is the d disease free survival in the PD1, a tumor cell positive at 1% or greater, uh, PD1 expression in the stage 2 to 3A populations. And you can see improvements in disease free survival um, in the uh, PD1 uh, positive populations uh, in, in particular. As you look through the different subgroups in the stage 2 to 3A population among PD1 positive tumor cell expression, again, you can see in general that. Uh, patients uh, seem to benefit with the uh, adjuvant atezolizumab regardless of factors such as uh, age, sex, uh, performance status, um, uh, tobacco history uh, to some extent, as well as uh, looking at some of these other subgroups of stage lymph node involvement. Um, importantly, it seems that um, among the, the smaller subgroups of patients with EGFR or ALK rearrangements, uh, there seem to be less of a benefit to immunotherapy, which is what we have learned in the uh, metastatic setting, although, again, the, the subgroups are relatively small in these population studies here. Again, similar findings in the all-randomized uh, population, and, and I'll draw your attention to this tumor cell uh, expression as, as we look at the PEARLS study next. Is, you know, we, we do have a sense in the metastatic patient population that the higher the pdl one level, uh, the, the greater the expression, the better the outcomes to immunotherapy, and that was borne out in this adjuvant study as uh, patients with very high pdl one expression of 50% or greater seem to do uh, e even better. If you exclude the EGFR-ALK patients, again, you'll see an improvement in disease-free survival across uh, various of these uh, pdl one subgroups. Um, importantly, again, looking at the PD-1 50% population, you see a nice separation of the curves here. Um, and again, uh, looking through uh, the different uh, treatment characteristics, um, again, it, it, these subgroups do raise questions when we see patients in clinic. If I, I see a, a node-negative patient, does that mean I should or shouldn't give uh, atezolizumab? It's hard to integrate many of these uh, factors together, such as stage, node involvement, PD-1 expression. But in general, we use adjuvant atezolizumab based on the uh, approved indication. Again, we're seeing ctDNA as a, a good readout um, for outcomes in the uh, adjuvant setting. So in patients who were uh, ctDNA positive, uh, the adjuvant atezolizumab did improve outcomes, but uh, this was the patient group that was at higher risk of recurrence. In the CTDA negative patient population, again, there was an improvement with atezolizumab, um, but in general, this was a more favorable uh, population after surgery. Uh, we just saw this uh, update um, about a week ago at the European Lung Cancer Conference. Um, again, just focusing on this pd one subgroup population of 50% or greater, whether you include or exclude the EGFR-ALK populations, again, a very sizable difference and impressive hazard ratios of 0.43 and 0.43 both, um, in both of these curves here. Um, in general, this is a, a safe regimen, although there are um, side effects to giving uh, adjuvant immunotherapy, again, for a, a, about a year, and there can be some 
uh, side effects that emerge over the course of treatment. Um, in terms of the rate of immune-related side effects, um, again, relatively uh, low risk, but there are some uh, side effects that can be quite bothersome for patients. So again, it's important for us to really understand, do all of these patients need adjuvant immunotherapy or are there are some patients that will be cured with the, the surgical uh, procedures alone. And again, the OS data, as, as we've seen, is not uh, yet fully mature. We're starting to see some separation in the curves and the PD-1 positives, but we'll have to follow this uh, further out with uh, longer follow-up for this patient population. And we know that this was also recently FDA approved in October of 2021. We've recently seen the uh, phase three Keynote 91 study also called PEARLS, and this was a similar uh, study of uh, not atezolizumab, but adjuvant uh, pembrolizumab, and this was a blinded phase three study, um, a fairly similar uh, design here of uh, one year of pembrolizumab versus placebo after patients um, underwent surgery. They did not have to receive uh, adjuvant chemotherapy, although it was uh, strongly recommended. So um, some of the patient population here, which was a difference between uh, the PEARLS study and the EMPOWER-010 study, some of the, the patients here did not receive any adjuvant chemotherapy. And that's uh, shown in this table here. About 14% of patients in both arms didn't receive any adjuvant chemotherapy. But um, in the overall population here, which includes PD-1 positive and negative, you do see an improvement in disease-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.76. Interestingly, and this left us all scratching our heads a bit, in the PD-1 high population, TPS 50% or greater, there was really no difference um, between those who received pembrolizumab versus placebo. And I think there are many questions you know, about the patient uh, uh, factors within this subgroup. Was there some uh, issue with the randomization? Were there some patients that had very high PD-1 levels of 90% more in, in one group than, than the other? I think we really don't know what, what accounts for this finding. But again, you can uh, get a sense that across the different subgroups that uh, in general, um, the, the pembrolizumab uh, did better than placebo, although um, in some of the uh, molecular subtypes, I think that the subgroups were relatively uh, small here that, that uh, we'll need to see how this uh, bears out in larger populations. Again, fairly early, but we don't see a clear separation yet in overall survival. And uh, similar to adjuvantezolizumab, the uh, uh, adverse event rate was uh, comparable, although um, some uh, uh, um, higher rate of adverse events, grade three to five in the pembrolizumab arm, um, higher uh, rate of dis uh, treatment discontinuation as you might expect with one year of therapy after, after surgery. So to conclude this section, uh, certainly the use of immunotherapy in the perioperative management of resectable lung cancer is a major advance, uh, major advance for us in the treatment of this disease. Which patients should receive neoadjuvant versus adjuvant immunotherapy, or should some patients receive both immunotherapy before and after surgery? It's a big open question for us. And I think, as always, we need additional biomarkers to really un understand and refine the treatment selection for patients with resectable lung cancer. Uh, so we have three cases we'd like to go through. Uh, the first two will be presented uh, by John. The, there are questions in the middle which are very important for us because they are not black and white. It's really questions that we have in our minds too. And it's going to be very important for us to know what's your point of view, uh, wherever you come from, to, to answer this very difficult question. So please go ahead. Thanks, uh, Dr. Peters. So um, I picked this case because it's a bit of an extreme case, and, but I think it illustrates uh, some, some interesting features of what can be achieved and some of the challenges that we still have to face. So 
He's a 48-year-old man who's an active smoker. His ECOG is uh, one when he presents. He presented with a very large tumor. You'll see a picture of the pet in a moment. Um, he was staged by CT, PET, EBUS. I say N plus because the tumor had essentially coalesced with, uh, with N2, N1 nodes. It's just one big mass. Um, he had uh, the diagnosis was non-small cell lung cancer, not otherwise specified, with a PDL1 of 90%, and there were no driver mutations from the pretreatment biopsy. He has lung function that's adequate for a lobectomy, I guess. Uh, it's also a little borderline, but not much functional lung in that upper middle lobe. Um, he presented with this SVC syndrome and right shoulder pain. Uh, we did brain imaging by MRI that was negative before treatment. So, uh, well, he ended up receiving chemo uh, immunotherapy. Uh, this was off protocol. Um, we basically ca called him unresectable stage three in order to get access. To, we have to do these little tricks in Quebec to get uh, access to some of these drugs. Um, and, uh, and then he went for uh, an additional, so he, this is his, uh, his interval scan after, after two doses. You can see a necrotic area emerging in the middle of the tumor. Um, here's another shot. And what encouraged me to offer him an operation is you can see there's a nice plane with the, with the trachea. This is the first branch of the pulmonary artery and there's a fat plane there too. So it's feasible to do a lung sparing operation where you could preserve the, the lower lobe. The phrenic you can see is already out and I'm not showing you the picture but the SVC is completely occluded. He's recanalized. All these vessels here are, uh, are collaterals that, uh, so you, I mean, we can resect the SVC without consequence for this patient. Um, so part of the concerns were, were whether the ribs were involved, the uh, artery uh, might have been involved as well. Anyways, these were all concerns we had going into surgery. Um, but there's clearly partial radiological response after these courses. It was a timing issue. He lives three, out, three hours out of Montreal, so uh, OR time, COVID uh, surges. We uh, gave him an additional cycle of immunotherapy to assist. This is one of the nice things of having a patient on uh, neoadjuvant treatment, as you can adjust. Um, and so that's the remainder of his imaging. We ended up taking him for surgery, uh, sternothoracotomy. Uh, lost about a liter just opening the chest. There were so many collaterals, but. Uh, once we got that under control, we were able to do a nice on-block resection. We had surprisingly good planes on the PA. No need for any angioplastic reconstruction. Um, I was worried that the ribs were involved. We sent multiple frozen sections. Everything was coming back negative for tumor, so we left the ribs in place. Uh, I was convinced I was going to have to do a bronchial sleeve. Bronchial margin is negative, so we didn't do that. Um, this is his post-op uh, post x-ray a month and a half out. I won't minimize how difficult his post-operative course was. He ended up going uh, to the ICU, getting intubated. He had uh, uh, profound hypotension, which ended up being steroid responsive, and one wonders whether he had a bit of an adrenal suppression from, uh, from uh, an immunotherapeutic complication. Ultimately, he went home and he had a, a good course. So, kind of a crazy case. Um, raises some questions. I don't know what you guys think. <laughs> Maybe. I I might ask if you know we heard this patient had a PDL1 level of 90%. If it was 0%, would that have affected your comfort with this kind of approach? Yeah, well, that was actually discussed at, at the tumor board at, at the onset, and I think it was part his age, his functional status were all kind of things that were pushing us in the direction of of trying something like this. Um, and I think the PDL1 certainly influenced us uh, at the beginning. Mm -hmm.
is probably uh, strongly dependent on the institution you work in, because this case in majority of institutions would have been deemed or considered as being non-surgical by definition at initial diagnosis. So that's, that's also maybe the time to re-question the definitions of resectability and operability consequently uh, based on the data we will produce in the, next, uh, in the next clinical trials, maybe not the current ones. But it's interesting to see that it's way beyond what you can expect in terms of resectability. You could go to an RZO without even needing a sleeve, so it was not expected. No, it was certainly wasn't expected, but then I wonder, could I have avoided the operation entirely and you know, maybe a, a radiotherapy consolidation there would have been adequate for this patient. You want to so. show the pathological response? Yes, sorry, I forgot <laughs> there's more. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's important because it's for my next question. Next right, question. right. So yeah, what came out? I, I just assumed that you guys knew. Um, so, there's, <laughs> so the tumor comes out, it's massive, uh, it's a large area of necrosis, there's a rim of inflammatory cells at the edge of the tumor, um, the innominate vein is marked by fibrosis, it was involved uh, originally, and the final path is YPT0 and 0 with an 8 centimeter necrotic bed, so, you know. That's why I'm saying maybe he was cured. He didn't need all yeah. this stuff. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that's the, the, the main question case. here we discussed just before coming here uh, to the stage: uh, Would you continue? Because there are pro and contras, right? Even melanoma colleagues, when they get a complete response in metastatic disease, which is a way better circumstances, they continue a little longer the immunotherapy. So here, after the surgery, what is the risk of still having some metastatic disease? And did you expose sufficiently your patients to IO to be satisfactory? Even in a uh, micrometastatic disease, do you think it was enough? So it's a big debate. Would you continue for an additional three, six, or, or eight, nine months to, to go up to a year or not? It's, um, it's, it's intuitive, right? I'm, I would have said yes, and I know you probably... Well, it's not my decision to make. You know, I don't prescribe <laughs> these things. Uh, I, was, I was sort of pushing for it at, at the post-resection uh, tumor board. Yeah, I, I hear different things from my medical oncology colleagues. So some will say, oh, he's had a great response. We should keep giving more. And others like, oh, he's got a great response. Maybe we're done, you know. And I think it really speaks to how, how little we know about, <laughs> about how to make Mark, what would you have done? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I, as looking at these uh, trial designs of this sandwich approach of immunotherapy before and after surgery, they're, they're all compared to chemotherapy alone and, and placebo. And so... We don't really have the answer to this question. I suspect the next wave of trials will be looking at this very question in patients that have neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy who have a path CR. You know, can we randomize patients? Will, will patients and, and their providers feel comfortable randomizing in the postoperative setting to continuation of immunotherapy or not? Do you, do you think those trials will... Uh, will need to be run to answer this. Uh, they, they should be run. But you know, there are many trials in the field of immunotherapies that were never performed because of feasibility, duration, and marketing issue, right? Usually, the, there's only one trial, the 816, which doesn't give rise to any continuation. Would the three other read positive with up to one year of immunotherapy, like in GI, like in breast, and so on? I'm not so sure that a pharma industry will invest in trying to show that less is better. That's usually not the case. So it should be an academic trial. And unfortunately, imagine the statistical design. You will need a lot of patients to show the difference. It might be important, but it will be a trial which has to last for a while because of no surrogate endpoints. So I hope so, but I'm unsure. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the biomarkers, the CTDNA, will yeah. be a better yeah. guide. Um, shall we go on to the next case? So um, this is a, another patient, a 71, older gentleman, uh, ex-smoker, 50-pack year. He comes in with an ECOG of uh, zero. 
he has this lesion, which you, you see a highly active uh, avid on PET, um, that is biopsied and comes back as a squamous cell carcinoma, PDL1 90%. We uh, clinically stage him as a T3N0. He has actually good lung function. Uh, we do a quantitative VQ scan, and the left lung has contributed 30, 35%. Um, so we ended up putting him on uh, chemo IO. Um, and you can see this is the post-treatment scan. There's still disease. The tumor has sort of retracted off the pulmonary artery ever so slightly, but it's clearly into the wall of the pulmonary artery. And, one would have to do a, an arterioplasty to, to try and save the lower lobe. Um, so then the question is, you know, he, he's had a bit of a tough course with the treatment. Um, he's a bit reticent to go to surgery. Um, are there other options? What do we do for him? How much do you trust your CT scan? Think about your first case. You have a CT scan with a, a, maybe a, a very tiny shrinkage here, but the other case you've presented before was a PT0, PN0, but still you had 20 centimeters on the CT scan. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so tough. Uh, and this is what I'm talking about, the black box that we have. The, this patient ultimately chose not to go to surgery. I think he was a bit uh, worn down. Um, and I told him it was sort of, I didn't mind doing the operation. Uh, I was open to it. These are fun cases for us. <laughs> but uh, but I, I think he was a little reticent and, and ended up choosing to go for RT consolidation. You know, he may have had a great response to treatment. There are concerns for me for radiation in a central lesion like this. Uh, what's the heart spread? Is there a heart dose there that's significant on the medium to long term? Uh, so we're not sure what the right answer is. What would you guys have done with uh, this scenario? Yeah, it's a great question. It just speaks to the need for uh, other imaging modalities. I think a PET scan wouldn't really be helpful here. It would likely light up just as much, um, whether it was malignant or an inflammatory right. response. So, you know, I think, uh, again, the, the patient preference here, you know, hopefully, again, with this very high PDL one level, um, hopefully he can do well with immunotherapy and, and radiation. So... Yeah, maybe because we maybe we should take some time for the questions. Yeah, sure, yeah. But just um, because we have not so much time remaining, and there are lots of questions. But maybe here just to continue, because one of the questions is about radiological response, right? We've been working on that under immunotherapy. Of course, we use uh, for this kind of cases something like the measurement according to resist. We tried also across each trials to use modified iResist, but they changed uh, in each trial and were never really standardized and are not applied. So my question to you is, with, you have this experience of neoadjuvant chemo-IO, but you have shown us very nicely that at least on the CT scan, it doesn't look to correlate, or at least you don't let the time to correlate with the pathological response. So would it be true to say that if you start such a strategy, if you don't face, uh, I would say, a new set of lesions, even a local growth might not discourage you to go to surgery. What I mean here is should you try to close the eye in front of the local evolution yeah. and go to surgery provided there's no new lesions or distant meds? So, yeah, I think, I think it raises the question of invasive re-staging uh, by yeah. mediastinoscopy or EBUS. Um, I've not been a proponent of that. The, the first patient I put on, first trial ever, was an Ipinevo patient uh, when 816 was open. And his, he had a huge mass in the right upper lobe, and it grew, and I was, I was very concerned. <laughs> but he had a decent response, and 
most of the time, I mean, these are just uh, specific cases, but the vast, vast majority of time we take patients to surgery, it's it's very uncommon that they get a progression that leads to non-resection or that would prevent me from going. And and that's quite difficult because in metastatic disease, usually we use the clinical parameter, how the patient is doing. Mm -hmm. But in the pre-surgical setting, I'm not so sure that this parameter is valid, right? It's too short time frame, it's still an early disease, you still have on-site ventilation uh, limitations. So I don't think you can rely on anything really uh, No, and, and, and the, the whole concept of all the patients who are put on these trials is that they should be operable at presentation. Yeah. So we're not trying to make people operable necessarily. I don't want people to get the wrong message. <laughs> so I have another question. Maybe Mark, you will take it first. Uh, in terms of biomarkers, we've been seeing in lung cancer also in other diseases that maybe one still exist and is reproduced over time is a PDL one. Not consistently, maybe at the time being not in pearls, but in IAM Power 10 and uh, in Checkmate 816, we'll see it on Monday. But my question to you is if you go into this strategy of neoadjuvant, chemo IO or IO, do you need PDL one? And would you have the courage to skip the chemo if you have a high PDL one? And the second question is what other biomarkers do you ask your pathologist to get? Only PDL one? It's a great question. You know, I think despite all the you know, progress we've made in, in immunotherapy for lung cancer, you know, we don't have that many clinically available biomarkers. And we also don't know exactly how they perform in the metastatic setting versus in the early stage setting. We know in general for stage four patients, they tend to have higher pd one levels on average than the early stage patient population. Um, but I, it's a great question. You know, if you had a patient like this with pd one of 90% or 95%, can you spare them the chemotherapy portion of the neoadjuvant therapy, can you just use immune therapy alone? And uh, we don't have uh, too many trials. You know, there have been some trials of uh, neoadjuvant atezolizumab alone or nivolumab alone. And um, on balance, we don't see quite as high path uh, complete response rates as compared to using chemo immunotherapy. So I think likely to, to get the best response possible, even in the pd one high population, um, we, we likely will be moving forward with more chemo immunotherapy combinations. If there's a you know, rare circumstance where there's a contraindication to chemotherapy, maybe in talking with our, you know, surgeon and multidisciplinary uh, care, perhaps there, there are some select circumstances where you might use immunotherapy alone and then get, get them to surgery. And other biomarkers? Do you other ask about your pathology? Yeah. You ask for the microsatellites, STK11, we think about it in lung, or yeah. even the TMB? Uh, I know even in stage four uh, lung cancer, you know, we, we don't incorporate a lot of other biomarkers, which is... Uh, uh, you know, ch- a challenge for us because we see su- su- such variation in the outcomes. You have two patients with the same, you know, PDL1 level, both KRAS mutant, one does well, one doesn't. We don't really understand. So, you know, we would love to have several of these biomarkers like, um, you know, quantitative immunofluorescence, looking at TIL infiltration or immune cell subsets, TMB, et cetera. But I think we're, we're just uh, too early to know in the early stage setting as, as to how these additional biomarkers may or may not uh, impact our, our long-term outcomes. Maybe one question to you, which was uh, asked by, by someone from the room is, uh, 
At the end of this debate, I remember in the phase one, two setting of neoadjuvant uh, immuno or immunochemo, there was this suspicion that there was this fibrotic kind of issue, more difficult, surgery was longer. So can you make a final point? Because you, you performed many surgeries on this patient. Uh, is it like after radiation at a certain time of waiting, it's difficult to perform the surgery? It's easier? Is there any difference for a surgeon? Yeah, so I think Checkmate 816 shows that there isn't uh, really, you know, on average. Um, I think by and large operations for locally advanced lung cancer after induction are difficult operations. Um, and I do think the timing is relevant. Uh, a lot of the early reports, surgical reports, were you know, consolidation treatments for patients who had been on many months of, of I.O., Uh, and I think that certainly induces a different kind of um, fibrosis that affects the surgery than a patient that you've done a planned operation three or four weeks after completion of, you know, three or four doses of treatment. It's, I think those are really important factors. The inflammation is still fresh. It's easier to dissect and the, it's borne out in the data that it's, you know, operations are shorter. There's no real reason why they should be shorter other than easier. <laughs> <laughs> Even easier. Yeah. And in the setting of neoadjuvant or adjuvant IO, the main questions that will come in some months from now, maybe uh, already present in your institution, you've been performing this trial, is what is the impact of this early stage immunotherapy? We know it also from the stage three somehow, uh, uh, to the impact for subsequent treatments while the patient relapses and you have to face a metastatic disease. What your, is your institutional kind of guidance there? Do you have a kind of um, an interruption of immunotherapy that makes you think that it's still worth retrying or rechallenging? What do you do in the daily, on a daily basis? Rechallenging I This is a really challenging uh, question for us, and, and there's so much variation in when the recurrence happens and, and the pattern, you know, the, uh, anatomically or, or radiographically. So I think one question that we've been asking in the kind of Pacific era of consolidation immunotherapy for one year is, you know, did they progress while on immunotherapy or after the completion? And I think we'll be asking these same questions in the early stage resectable setting. And if they progress while on immunotherapy or, or shortly after discontinuation, and if it's just a single site or a single lymph node, Can we use a, a, a local um, a therapy such as radiation or surgery? Um, is that curative or are, are you exposing patients to unnecessary types of procedures without uh, you know, helping them in the long term? So these will be really important questions for us to, to ask and address. Are, are they uh, having oligo recurrence or oligoprogressive disease? Is it while on immunotherapy? Is it you know, two years after the end of immunotherapy, in which case you might retry uh, an immunotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy approach. So there's a lot of variation, and, and, and we have small retrospective series that uh, show that you know, there's a lot of different practices going on out there. So. The city has defined 12 weeks as being potentially defining early relapse versus late relapse. Would you consider that beyond six, 12 weeks, it's worth retrying IO if you have, so we have stopped for more than 12 weeks? I think if a patient has tolerated therapy well and, and um, you know, they're not, uh, you know, their disease isn't, isn't ex you know, running, running amok or exploding, then I think it, it could be worth a try if, if you felt like there was some benefit. But uh, again, I think, um, you know, we don't really have a good understanding of even immunotherapy resistance, and, and these are important studies for us to do. You know, are, are these cancers that will lose some of the antigen presentation machinery, HLA class 1, beta 2 microglobulin, et cetera, in which case they may not respond to immunotherapy or Right now, we, we, we only have a few, you know, small case series of immunotherapy resistance, and we don't really understand that biology. Last question, then we will be we're already a little late for, to you. 
I've seen your wonderful immunofluorescence, right? Uh, and, and the question is, if you would like to maybe work less in the future and find yeah, the biomarker allowing you to confidently uh, kind of delay or observe, we start to see it in some uh, other malignancies, try to give up surgery in patients having a high PDL1, using neoadjuvant chemo IO. Do you think there is a parameter by, as you say, a restaging or reassessing the disease, circulating DNA, immunofluorescence, any kind of biomarker which at some point might make you potentially renounce to a local treatment and go to a wait and see strategy? They do it now, nothing with immunotherapy, but they do it now in colorectal malignancies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh the, the logo at MD Anderson, where, where I tra trained, has that line going through the cancer. I, I think unless you're trying to put yourself out of business, you're not trying hard enough, you know. <laughs> so um, hopefully I still have a bit more time because <laughs> I like what I do. But, and I think there'll always be a place for thoracic surgeons. But uh, that, I think that's certainly the direction we have to go in. Thanks a lot to all of you for your participation and asking questions and to be here. And I wish you a very nice congress and a nice evening. Thank you. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HCZ860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Genentech, a member of the Roche Group.